Love isn't about making people happy. It's not about wealth in, in the sense of riches. It's something so much more multidimensional than that. We want to focus on flourishing when we love. Welcome to the Acton Vault podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, we're taking you back in time to 2018 and a talk from our Acton lecture series. To be economically literate requires neither formal training nor advanced study. For those with the inclination, the most valuable economic principles can be understood with just a little nurturing of the so-called, quote, economic way of thinking. In this talk, Dr. Sarah Estelle shares how she sees the economic way of thinking as instructive in some of the ways we can love, too. What does economics have to say about our love for mankind, our neighbors around the globe, the least of those among us, our local communities and families? Integrating a Christian perspective and sound economics, Estelle considers in what cases market exchange can communicate love and in which situations market approaches would only crush it. Dr. Sarah Estelle is an associate professor of economics at Hope College. Most recently, she has undertaken work bridging the principles of traditional Christian teaching and classical liberal economics, and especially applying the lessons of economics to the Christian virtue of love, thickly constructed. She is the director of Religious Liberty in the States, a brand new statistical index that measures the legal safeguards for the free exercise of religion in the United States. Dr. Estelle is the founding director of Hope's Markets and Morality Student Organization, which explores economic issues through a Christian lens and brings speakers and film screenings to campus to enrich the Hope community's understanding of markets. Markets and Morality celebrates its 10th anniversary in the 2022-2023 school year. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Well, good morning and welcome uh, to our February Acton Lecture Series at the Acton Institute here. My name is Dan Churchwell. I'm the Associate Director of Program Outreach, and it's an uh, utter delight to see you on a cold day. Uh, last night, I returned from Palm Beach, and uh, it was 80 degrees, so uh, I didn't send a lot of pictures back home. They were a little bitter, but it is good to be back in the great state of Michigan uh, to introduce this fun event for Valentine's Day. I do want to first thank uh, our benefactors who make this event possible. We do these Acton Lecture Series almost every month, and then we have a, a foundational conference called Acton University every June, and we, uh, we exist to serve those ideas um, that our benefactors lay out, and it's just a, a, a great opportunity to be here. So thank you for showing up. Um, we do have wonderful opportunities to interact with our speakers. And so after Dr. Estelle is done today, you will have an opportunity for Q&A. Because these events are recorded, we do ask that you wait for the microphone. There will be people on our live stream that will uh, want to hear your questions. So please wait for the microphone. You can ask your question. We will have runners and we can go from there. As well, we have uh, four wonderful books in back that highlights some of Dr. Sarah Estelle's expertise. Um, several books by F.A. Hayek, The Fatal Conceit, and his classic, The Road to Serfdom. And then one of our uh, affiliate scholars, Victor Klar's book, Economics in Christian Perspective, as well as Dylan Pullman's, one of our researchers, his book on foundations of a free and virtuous society. So great books back there for you to see. Uh, now, without further ado, let me introduce Dr. Sarah Estelle. She's the Associate Professor of Economics at Hope College, right down the road in Holland, Michigan. She's the, also the founding director of Hope's Market and Morality Student Organization, which explores economic issues throughout Christian, through the Christian lens 
and brings speakers and film screenings to campus to enrich the Hope community understanding of markets. Um, and I just want to talk briefly about that. I've had the opportunity to work with Sarah on several events with her students. And the English language is quite interesting on the word love. Almost every language has multiple words or usages for the word love. And she's going to be speaking on the economics of love today on Valentine's Day. But I just want to say love is always others directed, others focused, true love, caritas, or agape love is others directed. And I have had the opportunity to see Sarah, not only the love of the discipline of economics, but her love for her students understanding the discipline of economics. And she really exerts a lot of love out of this student group on markets and morality. And it's just been a, a pleasure to work with her in several environments while uh, my time here at Acton. Sarah earned her PhD in economics at the University of Virginia and is uh, conducting applied microeconomic research on topics including parent parenting investments, higher education, welfare policy, as well as criminal justice reform. So she's a broad thinker, and uh, we're really glad she's here for our February Acton Lecture Series. Please welcome Dr. Sarah Estelle. Well, thank you all so much. Thanks for coming out today for um, this lecture uh, on the economic ways of loving um, you might have initially thought, what does economics have to do with love? I think the most obvious thing is, who doesn't love economics, right? I mean, isn't this just a natural thought? I'm surprised we don't see more couples here today. Uh, this is the most romantic topic I can come up with, right, is economics. It's beautiful. Um, but in all honesty, we should feel the love for economics if we're here at the Acton Institute. They do such a wonderful job imparting sound economic wisdom to various communities and constituencies. So I'm just really grateful for this opportunity. Um, if you're still looking for a reason that economics um, is readily applicable to love, let me suggest maybe to the men in the room, this is typically uh, where you're at right now. Have you bought your Valentines? Have you bought a, have you bought a card? If not, Google uh, economics Valentines and you can find a variety of things, including this um, romantic gesture that I made to my husband this morning. He's here with us today. Uh, the marginal returns of spending time with you will never diminish. It really just doesn't get any better than that, right? My satisfaction or my utility is a linear function of our time together, right? Isn't it beautiful? No, we can joke about this, right? Because we know that love is so much more than our own warm, fuzzy feelings, right? We know that it goes further than that. And Dan already has exposed this to some various notions of love, um, before we get into applying the basic economic way of thinking and some insights from Friedrich Hayek um, to the topic of love, let's talk a little bit about what we mean here, right? If we don't mean by love those warm, fuzzy feelings, if we're not limiting ourselves to something like romantic love, if we don't even mean something like if you're happy, I'm happy, right, which is actually pretty close to how economists typically model love in our empirical work, uh, we use what's known as interrelated utility functions. Again, romantic, isn't it? Um, right. And your satisfaction as it increases, mine increases. That's the definition of love in, in some economic perspectives. And that's very helpful, I'll have to say, in, in a lot of mainstream economic research. And I consider myself a mainstream economist. But from a theological perspective, maybe even from a more humane perspective, I know that's not everything, right? You know, within your various loving relationships, perhaps you have a child, right? Parents and children um, love each other in a different way than this, right? Parents don't want kids to be happy, right? You want their good. You want them to develop. You want the family to provide um, that sort of opportunity, right? Spouses likewise, even professors and students. I have a student here today, which I'm really excited about too, right? When I love my students, it doesn't look like happy a lot of the time. I teach an intro econ class at 8.30, Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning. Friday morning at 8.30 when they're taking a test. I'm not sure many of them are happy, right? But I think it's good for them. And I think it is a loving gesture on the part of a professor to think about what's good for her students, right? Love is also not something done in the abstract. Uh, we might think we love 
mankind, right? But philosophers would tell us that's not possible to love in that sort of abstract. There has to be a particular person, right? In particular um, action and, and, and a particularity to the love. So we can't love in the abstract. So what is a good um, operational definition of love? I don't know if I've heard one better than this from St. Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, right? Also reflected in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, love is to will the good of the other. And we could easily spend an hour a week, a year, <laughs> unpacking just this, right? It's so concise, but it's so dense with meaning, right? Um, I want to get to the economics. So let me just offer you a few thoughts on two of the key words here, will and good, right? To will doesn't mean to kind of wish half-heartedly to kind of throw a hope out into the universe or something like that. Um, it is a desire, but it's a desire that um, chooses. It's um, the idea of surveying and considering the available options um, and actually choosing toward the good. It's an orientation, right? It's so much more than just a, a feeling. And when we think about the good, if we think of this in Christian perspective, we might immediately think, I hope we do, that God is good, that all good things come from God, that the good that exists in human persons is because we image our God. Right? Further, if we think of human good, right, even if we think back to uh, the ancient philosophers, right, who, right, um, we know Aristotle um, influenced Aquinas a great deal, uh, to say the least. Um, the notion of good in that sense has kind of the end of the person in mind, right? What is their purpose? What have they been created for? What are they intended for? Uh, right? Tell us, right? We think of these multidimensional notions like eudaimonia or what we refer to these days as human flourishing. So to will the good of the other means to choose, to act, to be oriented toward their flourishing, towards their fulfilling um, of their purpose. Okay, so what does economics have to say about this? I think there are so many applications, and I hope in our time of questions and answers, we can get to some of those concrete applications. But what I'd like to do today is kind of outline um, a theoretical delineation of sorts where we think about right, the ways of loving and how we might want to love differently uh, in different relationships, in different situations, and not just based on um, who the subject of our love is. That's certainly important. But what is our relationship with them? And in particular, what do we know about them, right? In order to will the good, we need to know the other. So first, let's think about economics more broadly. One of the tasks I was charged with today, and this is one of my favorite things to do as an economist, is simply survey some of the basic perspectives of economics, right? There are a number of books in back that do a fantastic job of this as well. I think it's always important to start um, with a kind of first principles lecture of economics, just defining what economics is, right? Um, many people think economics is about money, right? Or it's about finances or investment or budgeting, or, or maybe it's broader than that. Maybe it's people's decisions about work, right? But it's financial. It's associated with, quote unquote, the economy, right? But actually, economics is so much more than that. That's certainly part of it. But economics is more powerful than that. It has so much more to say. I think a good starting definition or understanding of economics is simply that it's a study of human behavior. It's really as broad as that. Now, many of our social sciences would claim the same, right? Not just economists, but other social scientists as well would see the scope of their discipline as human behavior. So it's it's not that economics is one and the same with every other social science. We have our own uh, particular perspective or even methodology to how we approach uh, similar human sorts of questions. I think one unique aspect of economics is that we're particularly careful about understanding cause and affect relationships, okay? So where this kind of matches up with love and how this applies here, 
is that we want to think about the factors that lead to particular behaviors. We want to understand what are the causes of human action. But we also want to get a better understanding of the effects of human action or policy, right? Various interventions. And I think this is crucial if we're to understand love as effectively moving towards the good of the other, right? We can't just think about our intentions and then, you know, hope that it works out for the best. We actually have to orient ourselves toward the good, and therefore we have to think about consequences. And I think this is one of the major contributions of uh, the Acton Institute and the lessons that um, it spreads uh, to these various constituencies is understanding that intentions are not the same as beneficial consequences, that so often there are unintended consequences uh, to our actions, and in particular, I think, policy approaches. Some more about the perspective of economics that I think is important, right? If we're going to understand human behavior, we want to study it in the context that it actually exists within, right? I don't think economists are known for being optimists, although I tend to think we are, especially Christian economists should be. If we know that uh, man is made in the image of a creative God, there's all sorts of opportunity for uh, creativity and ingenuity and really wonderful things happening. Uh, but I think a good economist does have to also be a realist, right? What are, what are the realistic characterizations of human nature and the created order? And so economics, I think, has to start with an understanding of the universal state of scarcity, okay? It sounds kind of like a downer, right? It sounds like we're saying there's not enough. And in some sense, there isn't enough. But what we mean is that there's not enough to do everything we could possibly imagine, right? We don't have enough resources. Hey, we don't even have enough time in the day, right? Each one of us has 24 hours in our day, and we simply don't have enough resources to do everything we could imagine. Now, this doesn't mean we're not immensely blessed. And again, it doesn't mean we don't have hope, especially um, Christians. We have um, a great source of hope um, in our Redeemer, right? But scarcity still characterizes the world that we operate in today, right? And, and I think, therefore, should influence the way we think about loving, right? So if we have scarcity everywhere, rich or poor, selfish or selfless, we have limited resources, we have to make choices, right? You had to choose to be here today. You couldn't do everything simultaneously that you could do between noon and one o'clock. You had to choose. And therefore, you incurred a cost. Many of you have paid an explicit cost for the delicious lunch you're enjoying. Um, but even beyond that, you gave something up, right? You could have had a more leisurely lunch, perhaps with a loved one, or gotten an extra hour of work, or run off to the gym, or clean something up around the house, right? So many different options for this hour of time, even beyond purchasing your lunch today, right? Even beyond whatever gas you might have expended getting here, there's a larger cost that economists would refer to as the opportunity cost. We want to keep this in mind when we're thinking about loving others, right? Imagine um, a church community ministering to those in financial need within the church. You can think of a number of ways of approaching um, that experience together, but you can't choose all of them and if you put more effort towards after-school mentoring for children in low-income families, perhaps that means taking uh, time away from uh, accompanying um, the elderly poor to the grocery store, right? Um, you have to choose their costs, and it would be problematic to uh, ignore the costs simply because they're inconvenient. It's, it's part of our reality, and if we're going to love, we want to be kind of eyes wide open about the constraints that we face. One particular constraint um, I want to point out that's really just a more specific sort of scarcity um, will allow us to get some traction with the work of Nobel laureate Friedrich Hayek um, on this question of love. He doesn't really talk about love, but I think this is a really important touch point for understanding what economics has to say about the ways that we love. And this is the idea that even information is scarce, or better yet, knowledge Right, information that can be applied, that's understood, that has um, implications and is appropriate for application. Knowledge is limited, right? It's even local. Hayek says, 
in um, a masterful article, The Use of Knowledge in Society, that it is particular to time and place. So much of what he wrote throughout his life is rooted in this idea of local knowledge, and I think it has big implications uh, for love as well. Uh, Let me first, just to illustrate how important this is and and the way that Hayek uh, initially used this um, observation of his, Um, the example he used in the article was a partially filled shipping container, right? He said the knowledge of that opportunity, right, is, is local to time and place. Now, he was writing this article in the 1940s. You might push back and say, well, we know about these things, right? We, we wouldn't have a partially filled shipping container that someone wouldn't know. But to be in a position to act on that, to see that as an opportunity, to be able in a timely fashion to take advantage of that opportunity is necessary, not just with shipping containers, but with every other entrepreneurial opportunity out there in order to have a well-functioning economy, right? In order to have a flourishing world. And primarily he used this, especially early on in his career, to argue against central planning, right? It's just not possible to convey information to an individual or group of individuals in a way that they can make sound economic decisions when all of this valuable knowledge is dispersed. He says it's essentially dispersed, right? There's no one doing that. So this has huge implications for how our macrocosmos, as he refers to it, right, the larger order, how it operates best, right? It, it plays a big role in the development of civilization. But it also has implications for the microcosmos, right, the smaller order, uh, families, um, local communities, or what Hayek would say we can rightly refer to as societies. He's very skeptical about referring to anything related to the macrocosmos as a society because he says society is really about knowing one another, right? So only these smaller, more intimate groupings can rightly be referred to as societies. Okay, so this is the chief delineation that I want to draw, that local knowledge puts us in a different position, even with the same loving attitude, in a different position, depending on what sort of relationship we're talking about. Okay, so let's deal with the larger, the macrocosmos to begin with. I'm going to argue that while markets may not, strictly speaking, be about love, right, to will the good of the other, that's a tall order. Uh, They're love-like. They can aim toward the good, right? In situations where I really don't know enough um, to love explicitly and particularly Right. When I don't know the individual well enough, maybe markets are a love-like attitude. Okay, some points to my argument here, and then I'd love to develop any of these that you're interested in 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 Q&A. Statistics show that something like 70% of Americans think that poverty is getting worse. Right, that poverty rates are going up. In actuality, in the last 30 years, over a billion people around the world have been raised out of extreme poverty. What caused that? Right? You might think, okay, healthcare, technology, yeah, a lot of a lot of particular sorts of things. I think a lot of this follows from institutional changes. And in particular, if we think over the last 30 years, not new institutions in the sense that, you know, some in the Western world we hadn't figured this out some hundreds of years ago, but the spread of those institutions, right? More pervasive rule of law, right? More protection for property rights, Um, governments having a monopoly on coercion and using that in a limited fashion. And therefore, the ability of individual people, and again, made in the image of God with these creative capacities and unique abilities to have access to global markets. Okay, I think that's the kind of big picture story uh, behind the decreasing poverty rates around the world. And this follows pretty logically, again, from some basic economics and understanding of trade. Where trade occurs um, in a voluntary fashion, it generates wealth. Okay, so when I think love, I think baking. So Valentine's Day is a tough day for me because I just want to like bake all day and maybe give a few econ lectures. Um, And so I like to bake banana bread. And my student Cameron here, she likes to knit scarves. 
Okay, so we can think of a really simple example where I bake banana bread and she knits scarves. And if we come together, that's a market. That's really what a market is, just coming together. And if we can sort out terms of trade such that I walk away with some of her scarves and she walks away with some banana bread, by definition, that means I'm happier in making that trade than in keeping my banana bread and vice versa. She's happy with the banana bread. And that's real wealth, right? Economics is not a study of money. It's about real resources and real goods and services we we can create with them. That's where wealth comes from. Now, you might say that's a really simple scenario, two people engaged in trade, but that is the basic premise to what Hayek refers to as the extended order. We seek out these mutually beneficial trades, and that animates this expansion of this web of kind of service, right? And and all sorts of... Um, Again, I think web is, is is the best term here, right? That we just have these exp- this expanded relationship. Again, not quite love, right? We can't know everyone, especially in our global economy, that we trade with. But I think love-like in that it creates wealth that is valued by people around the world. Okay. Now, you might wonder, how does this extend to something like uh, social benefits or or socially sound use of of resources. Um, Hayek in that article, Use of Knowledge in Society, argues that the way he wants to pick an economic system or, you know, the reason he's a proponent for markets in particular is he wants to see a system that makes the best use of that dispersed knowledge. How is it that markets do that through the price mechanism? You know, prices might not seem the most, again, romantic topic for Valentine's Day, but they're really beautiful. Prices are really magnificent things, right? Back to baking. Um, I was trying to think of a really timely example of a price change that some of you may have noticed. Are there any other bakers? Anyone run out of vanilla recently? It's the sort of thing I have up in my spice cabinet I pull down every so often. I don't think about it until I need a teaspoon and I only have a quarter teaspoon. And then you run to the store. Do you know that in recent years, the price of vanilla beans has surpassed by weight? the price of silver. Why did that happen? I'll be honest. It's true. You can Google it. It's true. Um, I'll be honest. I had no idea why that happened when I was at the store buying a $20 bottle of vanilla. Um, But I I immediately thought, okay, what do I need to use vanilla for? And where can I maybe shave off a little bit, right? So my grandma's uh, recipe of banana bread, gotta have vanilla, that boxed cake mix, all right, I'll skip that, right? Maybe imitation vanilla or something else. I already, without knowing what changed the price, start to steward, if I can, right? Steward that resource differently. And isn't what that what we would want if there was, in fact, a tsunami in Indonesia? If, in fact, there was a political uprising or an increase in the price of labor in um, these regions that produce vanilla beans? Um, I found out this week they actually hand pollinate are they orchids that grow these vanilla beans within like a three-hour period on one day of the year? Okay, so there's a lot going on there that I can't possibly understand when I just want to buy some vanilla. But the information conveyed in prices allows me to act as if I know all those things, right? And so when something becomes more limited in supply and the price goes up, I naturally buy less of it. So I have the information boiled down into that price, and I also have the incentive because that's the price I'm paying when I get to the cash register. I want to be careful with how I use that resource. Okay, this isn't just true for vanilla. Uh, This is true for all goods and services that are exchanged in markets where prices are really meaningful, where they're allowed to adjust. And this is the marvel of markets that Hayek refers to and is really the argument against central planning that he devoted much of his his, uh, working career, which was most of his life, Uh, to arguing against right central planning. Uh, And I want to be clear, when I say central planning, I certainly do mean socialism and communism. But we lose the marvel of the markets when we have any variety of certainly socialism, cronyism, I would say, regulation, price supports, price caps, anything that skews the incentive structures that people face in their interactions um, is going to impede the real beauty of the price mechanism. 
Okay. And I think therefore has a really um, detrimental impact on the potential for human flourishing. So these are some of the highlights from um, economic perspective towards the macrocosmos, if we're thinking about human flourishing. You might wonder, so did Hayek just think markets were the solution to everything? Absolutely not. He warns us in his uh, final book, which is available um, in the back, uh, The Fatal Conceit, that we wouldn't want market thinking to find its ways into all of our dealings. He says, if we were always to apply the rules of the extended order, right, the macrocosmos, the big, uh, to our more intimate groupings, we would crush them. So we must learn to live in two sorts of world at once. Again, here's the delineation I want to make. We need to operate differently in these two sorts of world at once. So how about the family and our more intimate groupings? If I can get my slide to advance here, um, I'll tell you about what's similar between uh, families and the more intimate, uh, I'm sorry, and the larger entities as, as well as we still want to be aware, right? We have limited knowledge. In our families, we don't get perfect reason, right? And we're certainly not perfect in our goodness, right? I don't want to suggest that in our families, uh, things are simple. Uh, we're still swayed by what Hayek would refer to as an animalistic instinct towards altruism. We still might give a little bit too much credit uh, to our reasoning ability, okay? But there are some big differences, which is that we have actionable local knowledge about people that we're in close relationship with, people in our families, people in our church. I hope the people on our block, right? And most likely we share purpose, and hopefully we have aligned incentives such that we can operate in different ways in the microcosmos compared to the macrocosmos. And so if authority is aligned, right, decision-making power is aligned where knowledge and the incentives um, exist together, then we can operate through a so-called central plan, but within the family. This is not unusual, right? We can kind of think, oh, economics supports us doing families the way we naturally do families. Yeah, right. Parents do a lot of central planning. Who does what chore, right? Who's cleaning up the dishes? Um, how do we divide up our time even among spouses in the workplace versus in home production and the like? That can happen without negotiating uh, mutually beneficial exchange rates, right? And having a price mechanism at play. And we can even effectively use altruism because of those um, aligned incentives and the specific knowledge that we have. So what does this all mean in practice? I think there are applications we can make to a, a variety of kind of ministry areas, kind of thinking about poverty in general, um, but let me leave you with three takeaways, and then maybe we can unpack this a bit during the question and answers. Um, first, I think Aquinas' definition of love is really helpful in guiding us to focus on flourishing, right? Love isn't about making people happy. It's not about wealth in, in the sense of riches. It's something so much more multidimensional than that. We want to focus on flourishing when we love. When the relationship in question is distant, right? When we think about loving our brothers and sisters around the world, we're going to do that differently than we love our actual brother or sister, right? Our actual neighbor next door. And I think it's okay to recognize the differences and act in a way that is love-like, right? Willing their good, considering what might be in, in oriented toward their good. And for me, that means supporting property rights, the rule of law, and happily and freely trading goods and services uh, internationally. Uh, finally, when we think about our local and close relationships, we can love as we're accustomed. We can be altruistic, right, within a, a family or a close community. And when you feel the desire, that animal instinct that Hayek refers to in The Fatal Conceit, to really operate based on altruism, let me suggest you turn to your actual neighbor. Start with your colleague at work. Look at the parishioner down the pew from you and love locally. Okay. 
I, I appreciate your your optimism and your, the upbeat mm-hmm. attitude you have. Um, I was, it just, it's, I just read in the Wall Street Journal, they were talking about how a billion people were out of poverty, um, age uh, expectancy is growing larger, everything. And they received nothing but an outpouring of letters to the editor talking how off base and crazy they were. And I'm reading a book called Rational Optimism, um, where they're talking about uh, there seems to be an obsessive need to be negative and pessimistic, to get published, to get tenure, to and 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 why do you think negativity and socialism and central planning have such an allure when all the results would seem to be coming from the love of the market and the love of, of free enterprise? So I can tell you, I'll give you a sense of what I think Hayek would say because he said it before. Um, in a related way, um, in his book, The Road to Serfdom, which is also available in the back, um, he says that a lot of our looking towards government and uh, socialism is the result of our lives just getting so easy. We don't want to be bothered with inconveniences. We think whenever there's a problem, we're entitled to a fix and someone needs to fix it. So he argues in The Road to Serfdom that we have... Uh, lost our understanding of our heritage um, that has brought about these great liberties and the self-reliance and, um, you know, the innovation and the hard work and all those things that follow that we've lost track of our heritage and those ideas. And now we just want someone to fix our problems. I can't, right? My life's too hard, even though historically speaking, our lives are easy. Now, this isn't to um, ignore the fact that there are certainly communities uh, that are left behind um, by global trade for a time, sometimes for long periods of time. Uh, And that's where I think local community really needs to step up. In some of those situations, the cause is various, um, what? um, Oh, I've lost a word here, but um, various interventions that have, uh, have put a hamper on the price mechanism that can actually um, right, adjust the, I'm thinking of coal mining, for example, right, where you just see this large-scale um, problem, and it's why haven't markets adjusted? Why haven't people moved, for example? Why haven't people moved into new work? Um, there are a number of reasons, and I, I don't think government is often the the answer there. They have plenty of answers. I don't think they're that it's um, often the right answer. So I don't want to understate um, how difficult Um, advances in our global economy can be for some communities. But I do think the answer is in the local community uh, and or in people coming into those local communities that really want to get to know the people. Right. They don't see it as a problem, but see them as people. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Very great uh, presentation. Um, I'm wondering um, I don't think it's love if I force my neighbor to put solar panels on his house. That being said, how do you look at maybe the next 10, 20, 30 years as far as, we'll just call it green energy? What, how do you see that as fitting in with all of this? Great, great question. Um, so when I think about environmental goods... Um, I think if they are, in fact, goods defined as having value for people, that generally speaking, um, people invest in goods that they enjoy the more resources they have to invest in them. And I think there is empirical evidence to suggest the same, uh, that environmental goods are uh, more abundant uh, where we've met um, kind of the, the level of um, food and housing, et cetera, requirements for survival, where people are more than kind of thriving uh, in various ways in their communities. And they can say, OK, I can afford to care about clean air and cleaning up this river. Um, I think that's an important insight, uh, both in terms of the natural ability of markets uh, to provide environmental amenities. Now, there are tough questions there. And, and if you want to get into particular markets, 
Uh, one of my favorite resources related to markets and environmentalism is the Property and Environmental Research Center in Bozeman, Montana. I'm not an environmental economist, so when I have a question about the environment, I go to perk.org. <laughs> uh, and so there are a lot of specific ways um, of dealing with particular environmental amenities. Um, so I think markets are involved in um, and can be harnessed in a way that can produce environmental goods. I think restrictions on markets in an attempt to achieve environmental good can oftentimes fall on the shoulders of the last people we would want that to fall upon, right? When you think about, um, you know, who's burning fossil fuels to heat their homes, proportionally that happens more in poorer countries, right? We have all sorts of options today in the United States of, of cleaner energy. Um, I use that term carefully because I think sometimes we just assign that label without really thinking carefully about all the costs associated with power generation. But, um, that there is a disparity in the costs of um, governmental and inter really international attempts at, at providing environmental goods. Um, a last example that I heard from um, uh, Jonathan Adler, who's at Case Western University, again, an environmental um, sort um, law professor. Uh, he gave the example of the 1960. Cleveland River fire, right? Kind of famous for, oh my goodness, the river's on fire. He said, you know what made that so newsworthy? That the river hadn't caught on fire in so long. Because 20 years earlier, people would have looked at a river on fire and said, yes, industry is booming, right? We're moving in the right direction, that we have become so rich. And this isn't to say this isn't good. It is absolutely good that we're shocked when a river catches on fire. But that when that happens, Right. We we see that as unusual means that we've come a great distance in terms of our ability to provide for our communities and our families in a way that also allows us to have clean rivers. It's great. Thanks. And I remember the word I lost earlier, rigidity. So I think, you know, to the extent that government kind of makes more rigid wage adjustments and people's uh, occupations through licensing and, and that sort of thing, that's that's what I was going for. So. Thanks for letting me clarify that. Yeah. I have a question. Um, a lot of media reports that 50 to 60% of the population doesn't have three or $400 for a car repair. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do we teach that love for your family or even for yourself is to make these kind of choices you mentioned earlier about yeah. scarcity and spending and what are my true resources? Yeah. How can we, because it's just, the uh, population just wants to comfort and support and help everybody. We, we seem to be reluctant to challenge that individuality you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. to, to watch over yourself and plan for car repairs and things like that. Yeah. Um, let me respond to the, the individuality piece a bit first. I think those of us who are fans of freedom and lovers of liberty um, have a role to play in terms of saying just because we have freedom to do all sorts of things or the more freedom we have to do all sorts of things doesn't mean that all those things are good. Um, I want to be clear um, when I when I talk about liberty that it's liberty to do what we ought. And uh, as a Christian economist, I think that we need to be guided by the, you know, how has God created things, the the order that we um, operate in. We don't want to fight that order. We're only truly free if we accept uh, the constraints that that provides. And and I think to trust that that is um, for our good, right? The ultimate model of love that God has designed these things for, for our good. So I want to be clear that um, even as we uh, look to expand the scope of freedom, that those of us in local communities uh, that have experience in delayed gratification, in self-reliance, in valuing responsibility, that we share those values with others. There's nothing about freedom that precludes us from um, persuading others to our viewpoint. Um, I think a lot of where that happens, though, is it can be within churches, I think, um, although I think churches can oftentimes use some financial literacy in their there are opportunities for people to step in at a church and, and help with that. But I think oftentimes it starts with the family, 
And I think the economist Jennifer Roback Morse has a number of books that reflect upon this, how important uh, strong families are to um, imbuing these values that are necessary for the flourishing of children as they enter adulthood and ultimately to the flourishing of the extended order. Right. Even Hayek, he doesn't talk a lot about love. Uh, he doesn't even really talk that much about families, but he does say that families play an important role in teaching these lessons that are necessary for us to operate within this free exchange of the extended order. Hope that answers your question. Yes, I have a question. No. <laughs> Uh, the, the new green resolution has been in the news lately. And do you think it's a good idea to put out a new green resolution and the aspiration, and I would call it an aspirational new green resolution, just because of the, for its aspirational value? Or do you think we should first do a thorough um, cost of uh, unintended consequences evaluation before we put something out there for public yeah. debate? It's a great question. It gives me an opportunity to say ideas have consequences. So even if it's aspirational, and frankly, this is what troubles me so much about the current political moment and for years in the past, um, the ideas that people tweet, the ideas that people post online, they influence um, people's understanding of reality and, and what they think is possible. Um, I think we have to be cognizant of the constraints we face and the real consequences, as you suggested, a, a thorough assessment uh, of the consequences. I don't know that we need to take the new Green Deal and kind of break it down line by line and do an assessment. I think we already have a pretty good sense uh, of why these things won't work. Um, I think a book has just come out of the Cato Institute, for example, about um, why railways don't make sense in the United States the way they do elsewhere. I haven't read the book, um, but I think if if I wanted to know something about it, that might be one place that I would start. I'm a big fan of, of train travel when I'm in Europe, but, um, you know, when you think about how expansive the United States is and the various places we go by car and um, by plane, um, I just, I don't think it makes sense to think uh, so top down. Uh, so I don't know that we need to do a real thorough analysis. We need to drill down to the basic ideas uh, that are wrong in, in the New Green Deal. And maybe we start with the New Deal and think about what didn't go so well there and how it extrapolates on that. Um, it seems to me just kind of, uh, right, trying to improve environmental outcomes and provide everyone with a job. And if we say it's it will be, it will be because we've intended it. And, it's not going to work. So I think in terms of my calling, it's educating in the basic principles. And so I'm concerned about anything that's aspirational um, in a utopian sort of way. Um, not a big fan of John Lennon, right? Imagine. I think that's problematic because people can be convinced of such things. It's a good question. You mentioned uh, free trade and mm -hmm. um, freedom. And um, while you're talking about that, there seems to be um, uh, some discussion currently between tariffs mm -hmm. that are being imposed vis-a-vis totally free trade. Can you unpack that a bit for us? And why might we be seeing the direction that the current administration is going in? Yeah, I think the reason we see what we do is, again, people putting intentions uh first and thinking if the problem is people are losing jobs, they say, because of international trade, then what we need to do is is reduce international trade. Um, however, I think there's good evidence to the fact that a lot of uh, the shift in the structure of our labor markets is due to automation. And so I think we need to kind of change um kind of our target in terms of thinking about what's causing this and, and then think about the trade-offs. So does that mean we no longer want to uh, have anything automated? Um, I think the main cause of, of this uh, political tendency, right, because we don't hear, well, I was going to say we don't hear many people talking about free trade, but it's an interesting thing to hear Democrats talk about free trade in light of, right, Trump moving in the other direction. I 
kind of interesting in the scope of my own life. I wouldn't have expected that. Um, but it's really because people think I can identify the problem and um, and simply make it right, fix it by undoing the the culprit. In reality, what happens? And there's a good survey article by Scott Lincecum, who I met here at Acton uh, for the first time a couple years ago. He gave a great lecture. Um, he did a, has a survey article out. I wish I could tell you when it was published, um, but it's it surveys the immense empirical literature on uh, trade protectionism and the actual effect it had on various industries um, and whether it could save jobs. And across those studies and across industries, the answer is no. What's causing the shift in various shifts in the labor market cannot be fixed by tariffs, cannot be fixed by reducing trade. Um, furthermore, the effects of tariffs oftentimes are borne by, again, low-income people, right? When we look at importing goods and services, what does that do? That allows American citizens to have lower-priced um, good, goods and services um, because we've expanded the market to where there's more competition across the world instead of just within our country. Um, and so what happens when we reduce the market size? I mean, people aren't fans of monopoly, right? But when we move more in the direction of market power in terms of, you know, buy American, you're doing the same thing. You're allowing prices uh, to stay at a higher rate than they would be otherwise. And who does that really affect in terms of the day in and day out? Our, our low-income neighbors. Um, so I think those ideas don't change, but I think in our political no uh, moment uh, that it's politically advantageous uh, to note a problem which really exists, which is structural changes in our labor markets, and try to find a, a fix that seems immediate and obvious. Unfortunately, it's neither. Hi, I, I worked with um, uh, people in Eastern Europe for a number of years and uh, in the former communist world. And a number, a few of those people who ended up coming to this country and actually settling here, I saw in them uh, a feeling of, that you were describing earlier, of feeling overwhelmed by all the responsibility and the choices that they didn't used to have. And uh, they, I have a, have a friend who said in in uh, communism, we pretended to work and they pretended to pay us, you know, and that was kind of the philosophy. There's a lot of pretending. But what I'm thinking is, uh, it seems to me that among American millennials, that there's a similar feeling of being overwhelmed and uh, tired about all the responsibility that I combined with the, um, the escalating uh, college costs and debt and that sort of thing, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a reason why there was such a big following among millennials with the Bernie Sanders campaign and that sort of thing. As someone who's working with the, this generation at Hope College, do you see much affinity or interest in, that, in the free economy and, and all of that goes, goes with us among this, within this generation? Um, it's challenging. It's uh, it's challenging to identify students and attract them to thinking more and advocating for a, a free market uh, for a number of reasons, um, not least of which is the culture we have within higher education against those things. Um, right? They don't hear about markets um, certainly outside of a usually outside of an economics maybe a political science course. Um, if they do hear about them, uh, not in a positive light. Um, so it's challenging. Um, but it, I think one maybe touch point we can have, um, although I think it emanates from a difficulty, is it, we have a particular desire in our culture today for freedom in various social expressions, right? When you think about gender and sexuality, et, et cetera. Um, right. I get to decide. Right. And I wonder if we can't reorient that towards an understanding of what liberty is for. Um, it's not that people have lost their desire to somehow be 
or accomplish what they're meant to accomplish. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, just pointed, I think, in the wrong direction. Um, I'm currently reading a book by uh, Luke Yanoff and, and Hate, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. I sound like I'm a book salesperson up here today. I'm, I hope that's a good thing. This is, again, I think part of my calling, even with my students, I'm constantly saying, oh, you should read this. Um, but I'm finding it really helpful because it talks about some of the reasons they would say that um, young people, and we're even past millennials now, right? Uh, millennials are could be our bosses. Um uh, young people today are, because of good intentions of parents, but really bad ideas, are being coddled. Now, they're not pointing at uh, the young people as somehow flawed themselves, but we've been using some bad ideas. And one of the chief bad ideas they point to is forgetting that um, young people are anti-fragile. And anti-fragile doesn't just mean grit, like they have an ability uh, to deal. Right? I don't know if you know this. Sometimes uh, young people say like, oh, I can't deal. Right? This is a thing now. I just can't deal. Uh, no, it's not just that they have grit and they can deal, that they can handle different situations and confront challenges. Anti-fragile means they must. It's the idea that the human person really is a needs to face challenges and overcome them in order to be developed. Um, and so I, I find that a really attractive um, theory towards what we're confronting in higher education with our students and um, kind of just gives me uh, a greater appreciation for what a professor and community members, I mean, you can do this with young folks in your churches and in your families too, um, what it looks like to encourage students to see their potential and face challenges because of their potential, not to skirt those challenges. Um, I think we have to learn that we can overcome challenges before we can deal. Yeah. Thank you. Um, in the macro sense, if actionable knowledge is one of the limiting factors to how we can sort of engage at the macro level, how do you see technology and just and access to information and that we have algorithms that can give us info in real time. How does that how's that affecting that that some of those limitations? Oh, that's great. That's a great question. Yeah. I, I think another way of even stating that question is does big data make Hayek obsolete? Right? Wanna it, um because not to say that your question wasn't it was certainly more nuanced than that, but I, I think just to put a label on it, because that's a real live question. Um my current thinking on this is no. Um it doesn't make Hayek obsolete. If we understand the distinction he draws, and I'm sorry I couldn't um, develop this more during the talk, between information and knowledge, between data and knowledge. So knowledge is really actionable. Uh, that's a word I put on it. I don't think he uses that. But, right, it's able to be understood, interpreted, right, responded to. Um, and so even where there's big data, it's really information that still needs to be unpacked and acted upon. Um, right. When he says that knowledge is essentially dispersed, I had a philosopher once say, oh, I'm sold. Right. He used the word essential. I'm convinced. Uh, I don't know if we should be that that easily convinced. But but he does really mean like this is in the en essence of knowledge. There's nothing that's going to undo uh, this dispersed knowledge kind of constraint. Um you know, that's that's one point in that direction. Another is I, I learned, and, and this could be changing very quickly, but I think a couple of years ago I saw that uh, Google actually physically ships data sometimes. Can anyone nod to, has anyone heard this, right? That large amounts of data still cannot be quickly conveyed over fiber optics. And so sometimes people will purchase, right? They'll, they'll put some mainframes or something on the back of a semi-truck and ship it across the country because it's quicker. That would have never occurred to me because I just don't understand technology to that extent. And so I think we think about artificial intelligence, we think about big data, and we have this very wide eye sometimes idea that, wow, it's all out there. We're so close uh, to shedding one of these major constraints. In reality, there's still a semi-truck stopping, you know, after it's mandatory, like, 16-hour rest, right, off at the rest stop, <laughs> waiting to get to its destination. 
So we're not quite there yet. Um, and I think because of just how the human mind works, we're never going to get to the point that a machine can replace that interpretive portion of taking data and making it really knowledge. It's a good question, though, and I think it motivates, hopefully will motivate a lot of us to think more about what Hayek means by local knowledge so we can confront that question. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.